Chapter Five of the Loss of the SS Titanic by Lawrence Beasley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Five, The Rescue. All accounts agree that the Titanic sunk about two twenty a.m. A watch in our boat gave the time as two thirty a.m. Shortly afterwards, we were then in touch with three other boats. One was fifteen on our starboard quarter, and the others I have always supposed were nine and eleven, but I do not know definitely. We never got into close touch with each other, but called occasionally across the darkness, and saw them looming near and then drawing away again. We called to ask if any officer were aboard the other three, but did not find one. So in the absence of any plan of action, we rode slowly forward, or what we thought was forward, for it was in the direction the Titanic's bows were pointing before she sank. I see now that we must have been pointing northwest, for we presently saw the northern lights on the starboard, and again, when the Carpathia came up from the south, we saw her from behind us on the southeast, and turned our boat around to get to her. I imagine the boats must have spread themselves over the ocean fanwise as they escaped from the Titanic. Those on the starboard and port sides, forward being almost dead ahead of her, and the stern boats being broadside from her. This explains why the port boats were so much longer in reaching the Carpathia, as late as 8.30 a.m., while some of the starboard boats came up as early as 4.10 a.m., some of the port boats had to row across the place where the Titanic sank to get to the Carpathia, through the debris of chairs and wreckage of all kinds. None of the other three boats near us had a light, and we missed lights badly. We could not see each other in the darkness. We could not signal to ships which might be rushing up full speed from any quarter to the Titanic's rescue. And now we had been through so much it would seem hard to have to encounter the additional danger of being in the line of a rescuing ship. We felt again for the lantern beneath our feet, along the sides, and I managed this time to get down to the locker below the tiller platform and open it in front by removing a board, to find nothing but the zinc air tank which renders the boat unsinkable when upset. I do not think there was a light in the boat. We felt also for food and water, and found none, and came to the conclusion that none had been put in. But here we were mistaken. I have a letter from 2nd Officer Lytoller, in which he assures me that he and 4th Officer Pittman examined every lifeboat from the Titanic, as they lay on the Carpathia's deck afterwards, and found biscuits and water in each. Not that we wanted any food or water then. We thought of the time that might elapse before the Olympic picked us up in the afternoon. Towards 3 a.m., we saw a faint glow in the sky ahead on the starboard quarter. The first gleams, we thought, of the coming dawn. We were not certain of the time, and were eager, perhaps, to accept too readily any relief from darkness. Only too glad to be able to look each other in the face and see who are our companions in good fortune. To be free from the hazard of lying in a steamer's track, invisible in the darkness. But we were doomed to disappointment. The soft light increased for a time, 
and died away a little, glowed again, and then remained stationary for some minutes. The northern lights, it suddenly came to me, and so it was. Presently, the light arched fanwise across the northern sky, with faint streamers reaching towards the pole star. I had seen them of about the same intensity in England some years ago, and knew them again. A sigh of disappointment went through the boats, as we realized that the day was not yet. But had we known it, something more comforting even than the day was in store for us. All night long we had watched the horizon with eager eyes for signs of a steamer's lights. We heard from the Captain Stoker that the first appearance would be a single light on the horizon, the masthead light, followed shortly by a second one, lower down, on the deck. If these two remained in vertical alignment, and the distance between them increased as the lights drew nearer, we might be certain it was a steamer. But what a night to see that first light on the horizon! We saw it many times as the earth revolved, and some stars rose on the clear horizon, and others sank down to it. There were lights on every quarter. Some we watched and followed, until we saw the deception, and grew wiser. Some were lights from those of our boats, that were fortunate enough to have lanterns. But these were generally easily detected, as they rose and fell in the near distance. Once they raised our hopes, only to sink them to zero again, Near what seemed to be the horizon, on the port quarter, we saw two lights close together, and thought this must be our double light, but as we gazed across the miles that separated us, the lights slowly drew apart, and we realized that they were two boats' lanterns at different distances from us, in line, one behind the other. They were probably the forward port boats that had to return so many miles next morning across the Titanic's graveyard. But notwithstanding these hopes and disappointments, the absence of lights, food and water, as we thought, and the bitter cold, it would not be correct to say we were unhappy in those early morning hours. The cold that settled down on us like a garment that wraps close around was the only real discomfort, and that we could keep at bay by not thinking too much about it, as well as by vigorous friction and gentle stamping on the floor. It made too much noise to stamp hard. I never heard that anyone in boat B had any effects from the cold. Even the stoker, who was so thinly clad, came through without harm. After all, there were many things to be thankful for, so many that they made insignificant the temporary inconvenience of the cold, the crowded boat, the darkness, and the hundred and one things that in the ordinary way we might regard as unpleasant. The quiet sea, the beautiful night, how different from two nights later when flashes of lightning and peals of thunder broke the sleep of many on board the Carpathia, and above all the fact of being in a boat at all when so many of our fellow passengers and crew, whose cries no longer moaned across the water to us, were silent in the water. Gratitude was the dominant note in our feelings then, but grateful as we were, our gratitude was soon to be increased a hundredfold. About 3.30 a.m., as nearly as I can judge, someone in the bow called our attention to a faint, far-away gleam in the southeast. We all turned quickly to look, 
and there it was certainly streaming up from behind the horizon like a distant flash of a warship's searchlight then a faint boom like guns afar off and the light died away again the stoker who had lain all night under the tiller sat up suddenly as if from a dream the overcoat hanging from his shoulders i can see him now staring out across the sea to where the sound had come from and hear him shout that was a cannon but it was not it was the carpathia's rocket though we did not know it until later but we did know now that something was not far away racing up to our help and signaling to us a preliminary message to cheer our hearts until she arrived with every sense alert eyes gazing intently at the horizon and ears open for the least sound we waited in absolute silence on the quiet night and then creeping over the edge of the sea where the flash had been we saw a single light and presently a second below it and in a few minutes they were well above the horizon and they remained in line but we had been deceived before and we waited a little longer before we allowed ourselves to say we were safe the lights came up rapidly so rapidly it seemed only a few minutes though it must have been longer between first seeing them and finding them well above the horizon and bearing down rapidly on us we did not know what sort of a vessel was coming but we knew she was coming quickly and we searched for paper rags anything that would burn we were quite prepared to burn our coats if necessary a hasty paper torch was twisted out of letters found in someone's pocket lighted and held aloft by the stoker standing on the tiller platform the little light shone in flickers on the faces of the occupants of the boat ran in broken lines for a few yards along the black oily sea where for the first time i saw the presence of that awful thing which had caused the whole terrible disaster ice in little chunks the size of one's fist bobbing harmlessly up and down and spluttered away to blackness again as the stoker threw the burning remnants of paper overboard but had we known it the danger of being run down was already over one reason being that the carpathia had already seen the lifeboat which all night long had shown a green light the first indication the carpathia had of our position but the real reason is to be found in the carpathia's log went full speed ahead during the night stopped at four a m with an iceberg dead ahead it was a good reason with our torch burnt and in darkness again we saw the headlights stop and realized that the rescuer had hove too a sigh of relief went up when we thought no hurried scramble had to be made to get out of her way with a chance of just being missed by her and having to meet the wash of her screws as she tore by us we waited and she slowly swung round and revealed herself to us as a large steamer with all her portholes alight i think the way those lights came slowly into view was one of the most wonderful things we shall ever see it meant deliverance at once that was the amazing thing to us all we had thought of the afternoon as our time of rescue and here only a few hours after the titanic sank before it was yet light 
we were to be taken aboard. It seemed almost too good to be true, and I think everyone's eyes filled with tears, men's as well as women's, as they saw again the rows of lights, one above the other, shining kindly to them across the water, and thank God was murmured in heartfelt tones around the boat. The boat swung round, and the crew began their long row to the steamer. The captain called for a song, and let off with, Pull for the shore, boys. The crew took it up quaveringly, and the passengers joined in, but I think one verse was all they sang. It was too early yet. Gratitude was too deep and sudden in its overwhelming intensity for us to sing very steadily. Presently, finding the song had not gone very well. We tried a cheer, and that went better. It was more easy to relieve our feelings with a noise, and time and tune were not necessary ingredients in a cheer. In the midst of our thankfulness for deliverance, one name was mentioned with the deepest feeling of gratitude, that of Marconi. I wish he had been here to hear the chorus of gratitude that went out to him for the wonderful invention that spared us many hours, and perhaps many days, of wandering about the sea in hunger and storm and cold. Perhaps our gratitude was sufficiently intense and vivid to Marconi some of it to him that night. All around we saw boats making for the Carpathia, and heard their shouts and cheers. Our crew rowed hard in friendly rivalry with other boats to be among the first home, but we must have been eighth or ninth at the side. We had a heavy load aboard, and had to row round a huge iceberg on the way. And then, as if to make everything complete for our happiness, came the dawn. First a beautiful, quiet shimmer away in the east then a soft golden glow that crept up stealthily from behind the skyline as if it were trying not to be noticed as it stole over the sea and spread itself quietly in every direction so quietly as if to make us believe it had been there all the time and we had not observed it the sky turned faintly pink and in the distance the thinnest fleeciest clouds stretched in thin bands across the horizon and close down to it, becoming every moment more and more pink. And next, the stars died, slowly, save one which remained long after the others just above the horizon. And nearby, with the crescent turned to the north, and the lower horn just touching the horizon, the thinnest, palest of moons. And with the dawn came a faint breeze from the west, the first breath of wind we had felt since the Titanic stopped her engines. Anticipating a few hours, as the day drew on to 8 a.m., the time the last boats came up, this breeze increased to a fresh wind which whipped up the sea, so that the last boat laden with people had an anxious time in the choppy waves before they reached the Carpathia. An officer remarked that one of the boats could not have stayed afloat another hour, the wind had held off just long enough. The captain shouted along our boat to the crew as they strained at the oars, two pulling and an extra one facing them and pushing to try to keep pace with the other boats. A new moon! Turn your money over, boys! That is, if you have any. 
we laughed at him for the quaint superstition at such a time but it was good to laugh again and he showed his disbelief in another superstition when he added well i shall never say again that thirteen is an unlucky number boat thirteen is the best friend we ever had if there had been among us and it is almost certain that there were so fast does superstition cling those who feared events connected with the number thirteen i am certain they agreed with him and never again will they attach any importance to such a foolish belief perhaps the belief itself will receive a shock when it is remembered that boat thirteen of the titanic brought away a full load from the sinking vessel carried them in such comfort all night that they had not even a drop of water on them and landed them safely at the Carpathia's side, where they climbed aboard without a single mishap. It almost tempts one to be the thirteenth at table, or to choose a house numbered thirteen, fearless of any croaking about flying in the face of what is humorously called providence. Looking towards the Carpathia in the faint light, we saw what seemed to be two large, fully rigged sailing ships near the horizon, with all sails set, standing up near her. But we decided that they must be fishing vessels off the banks of Newfoundland, which had seen the Carpathia stop, and were waiting to see if she wanted help of any kind. But in a few minutes more, the light shone on them, and they stood revealed as huge icebergs, peaked in a way that readily suggested a ship. When the sun rose higher, it turned them pink, and sinister as they looked, towering like rugged white peaks of rock out of the sea, and terrible as was the disaster one of them had caused, there was an awful beauty about them which could not be overlooked. Later, when the sun came above the horizon, they sparkled and glittered in its rays, deadly white, like frozen snow rather than translucent ice. As the dawn crept towards us, there lay another almost directly in the line between our boat and the Carpathia, and a few minutes later another on her port quarter, and more again on the southern and western horizons, as far as the eye could reach, all differing in shape and size and tones of color according as the sun shone through them, or was reflected directly or obliquely from them. We drew near our rescuer, and presently could discern the bands on her funnel, by which the crew could tell she was a quonarder, and already some boats were at her side and passengers climbing up her ladders. We had to give the iceberg a wide berth and make a detour to the south. We knew it was sunk a long way below the surface with such things as projecting ledges. Not that it was very likely there was one so near the surface as to endanger our small boat, but we were not inclined to take any risks for the sake of a few more minutes when safety lay so near. Once clear of the berg, we could read the Cunarder's name, Carpathia, a name we are not likely ever to forget. We shall see her sometimes, perhaps in the shipping lists. As I have done already once when she left Genoa on her return voyage, and the way her lights climbed up over the horizon in the darkness, the way she swung and showed her lighted portholes, and the moment when we read her name on her side will all come back in a flash. We shall live again the scene of rescue, 
and feel the same thrill of gratitude for all she brought us that night. We rode up to her about 4.30, and sheltering on the port side from the swell, held on by two ropes at the stern and bow. Women went up the side first, climbing rope ladders with a noose round their shoulders to help their ascent. Men passengers scrambled next, and the crew last of all. The baby went up in a bag with the opening tied up. It had been quite well all the time, and never suffered any ill effects from its cold journey in the night. We set foot on deck with very thankful hearts, grateful beyond the possibility of adequate expression to feel a solid ship beneath us once more. End of chapter 5